This morning we're going to continue our work uh, through, if you're visiting with us, we're working our way through the Psalms of Ascent, and we're most of the way, two-thirds of the way through it. Um, so what we're going to do a responsive reading. I think there is a men's and ladies uh, portion of it, so be attentive. Let's go ahead and jump on in. Out of the depths I cry out to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? I wait for the Lord. My soul waits for the Lord. O Israel, hope in the Lord. Oh, I'm sorry. And he will redeem Israel. <laughs> Thank you. And amen. <laughs> so, uh, twice in my life, I have been in deep water and in real trouble. Twice in my life, I uh, almost denied you a preacher <laughs> uh, because I almost drowned. One was when I was two years old. And here's a public service announcement for you. Drowning doesn't look anything like what you expect it to look if you've watched television and seen people drowning. Drowning is absolutely silent. Because once a person begins to drown, it's because they've taken on water. And so the opportunity to talk is gone because they can't expel air past their vocal cords. So drowning people don't make a lot of noise. Drowning people tend to be vertical in water because they're going up and down and they're desperate to get out of it. A drowning person will climb all over you trying to kill you. And they're not trying to kill you, but they may do that by accident because they are terrified. One of my very earliest memories is of being that kid. Incidentally, that's not me. I didn't have that picture taken, and I suspect that kid's not actually drowning, although he looks like he is because you're up and down in the water. I was two years old, one of my very earliest memories. We used to go to a health club when I was a little bitty kid. My parents had this membership to the health club. And there was a pool, and, you know, I knew I couldn't swim in that water. You know, I'd been held and so forth. But, you know, I was left to play on the stairs. My parents left me in the, in the care of my 12-year-old brother and my 10-year-old sister because my parents were just a little bit crazy. And uh, I was playing on the stairs to go down into the pool. What I didn't know was that there was a ledge all the way around the outside of the pool, about yay wide, and then a drop of about two feet. You know? And I can remember this. I really can. I can remember standing on that ledge, which is just past the stairs, with my hand on the wall, standing on the ledge and thinking, I've grown. I'm tall enough to touch the bottom. And then I stepped off the ledge. My brother and sister were there in the pool with me, but they were like Harriet Yelton and Lloyd Kane, straight line, and my sister was facing my brother. They were having a fight, you know, as one does when one's watching a two-year-old, right? At least if one is 12. And I can remember thinking, oh, I'm in trouble. I'm in real trouble. I'm I, Seriously, earliest memories of bouncing off the 
off the ground of the pool, trying to get back into the air, trying to breathe. Now, that memory fades out. Uh, I have a vague memory that I think is false of seeing my dad come up the stairs into the pool area. But he stood there, apparently, on the side of the pool looking at his floating two-year-old son. Pulled me out of the water by my ankles and beat on my back to get the water. And they actually did CPR on me. That's how close to dead I became. I think it was because that was such a traumatic memory that that thing got stored into my brain. You know, it's awful. Drowning is so much less fun than it sounds. It hurts, and it, it is seriously just an overwhelming sense of terror, of panic, of danger, of threat. Because it'll kill you. And even a two-year-old knows, this will kill me. I can't live here. Because we can't. We aren't built for that. We don't survive in that. It ends us. And the moment we take it into ourselves, we know that was wrong. I am not okay now. To the ancient Hebrew mind, the, uh, for the ancient person, there was no more threatening place than the sea. They called the sea the abyss. Fishermen would go out on the sea regularly because it was a source of food. It was a source of wealth. You can go out there, throw your nets in, and pull money out of it. You can pour food for your family out of it. But any fisherman, if you asked any of them, they would tell you about friends who had gone out to pull food from the sea and instead the sea had treated them as food and pulled them down. It was chaotic. It was unpredictable. You never knew what was next. They didn't have their iPhones with them, I guess, so they couldn't check the weather and see what was coming. And it would just absolutely consume you. There's no wonder then that it becomes such a powerful metaphor for this thing. Because the moment you take it into yourself, I mean, when you first do it, you're thinking, oh, I'm big enough. And then you step off the ledge, don't you? You enter into this thing and you suddenly realize, I'm undone. What have I done? What am I now? And this is killing me. I don't mean that as metaphor. I mean that as experience. And you've had it too, haven't you? Of waking up and seeing yourself through eyes that you wish you didn't have to look through. Encountering the truth of your sin and knowing this, this is not what I'm made for. This is killing me. It's like breathing water. I don't feel alive when I sit in this. You know, Christians make the mistake of thinking that's, that thing is because Jesus died on the cross, I don't, I don't have to come to terms with you. I don't have to deal with you. Sin is taken care of for me. The mistake is that that will leave you pretty permanently in it. And whether or not it gets you to heaven, that, that, the cross is very powerful, and it can even leave a, a sin practitioner and rescue them. 
but you'll lose so much of what you were meant to be if you don't deal with this thing. But realize, dealing with it is pretty advanced stuff. There are 15 Psalms of Ascent. Their songbook for the journey was 15 songs long. This is the 11th. And it is the very first time we have dealt with our own iniquity. We've dealt with other people's. I've had to deal with being treated with contempt. I've had to deal with being mistreated. And what do I do with that? I've had to deal with the stuff. But this is the first time I've looked into myself and seen what is there. The first time that the prayer song has guided me into my own heart to show me the truly awful nature of some of the rooms in there. The bleakness of it all. Eleven psalms in, almost all the way through, before we first time deal with this monstrosity. But we're invited to do it today. We're gathering around the campfire again. On this journey to Jerusalem, on this journey into the presence of God. But look and look through just just real quickly. Let's deal with what we've already dealt with. Okay, what do these songs do? Well, the first song is to realize that I've been too long influenced by other things than God. And you might make the argument, well, at the very beginning, it deals with sin. Yes, to a degree, but it doesn't really lead you into it. It just acknowledges there are influences on me, and I'm being influenced. I need the influence of God. I need to go be with God. And then it says, the looks around to the hills. Where am I going to find help? God is my only help, and He is enough. He's the only help I need. And then it says, I will pray for God's city and God's people. I will pray for the safety and the peace of Jerusalem. I will pray that God's people live together in harmony and beauty because there's my hope. There's where I'm going to encounter God is among His people. How will I do it if this is taken from me? And then I look to God to help me to deal with this contempt and mistreatment I humble myself so that I can be with God and deal with these problems of the way I'm treated and what it's doing to me. God shows Himself over and over again to be trustworthy, and so we trust Him. And I pray that I will, because there's so much pressure not to trust Him, but I want to. And trusting God is wise, because those who trust God are surrounded. Like the mountains around Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds me and surrounds us. God can renew and restore us. Only God is our hope, and He is all that we need. And then there's only God can give us the good life. We cannot take it for ourselves. We have to trustingly receive it. And then the way of life given to us by God is a better life. It just is. Because that's the blessed life. And I have been mistreated. Rescue me, O God, from my bitterness. Do you see how much work we've done? On this journey, we have walked through all of that. And yet we have not yet dealt with our own evil. Not once. The focus has always been on the evil influence around me. And maybe my tendency to have an evil response to evil, that may have shown up. But I haven't really dealt with the root. I haven't spent time looking at the truth that I, myself, am a sinner. I wouldn't know that if God hadn't told me. You know, it might, and you see it all around us. People assume they're not sinners. That's why they make the political choices they do. It's why they make the the lifestyle choices they do. It's why they make the money choices they do. I'm not a sinner. 
You ask the people in the world, they will tell you. And if it weren't for revelation, you wouldn't know either. It is God who told you the story of Adam and Eve and what happened to us. It's God who's let you know that you have a real problem. But folks, hear how big the problem is. Okay, We were not ready to deal with this at the start. We had to walk on this journey for a few days and do all that other work about the trustworthiness of God and about the truth of the danger that surrounds me and about developing a trust in God before I could, first time I could deal with the fact that I am in deep water. Unless I believe all that other stuff, I'm really not ready to deal with sin. And listen, they're on their way to a city where that thing is. That's a structure within the temple. It's designed for dealing with sin. It's the altar. It's where the whole burnt offerings happen. This psalm is not about forgiveness. Okay, God had set up a means of forgiveness. And they knew it, and they could be confident in it. This psalm isn't about being forgiven. You know, We also have something that we look to. It was just talked about, right? When we gathered at the table, the different symbols of the cross. The cross of Jesus Christ is about our forgiveness. And folks, it is entirely possible for the Jewish people to have put their, their, uh, to be dismissive of what happens here as though there's no longer a problem. Because I'm forgiven, I don't have to deal with this thing. And it is entirely possible for Christians to do the same. This psalm leads you to look at this thing a little differently than that. Because it's not about forgiveness. It's about finding freedom. It's about the truth of liberation. Of rescue. That you can be free from sin. After all, the the Gospel according to Paul is that one who has died is freed from sin. And that we in Christ Jesus have entered into His death. And so that we also can be free from sin. So many people, so many Christians, live loving their forgiveness, but not wanting to find their way back to dry ground. Bobbing up and down in life's water, and breathing deep of bad practices and bad behaviors, and unwilling to change. And so we stay locked in prisons of anger and hate. We carry around grudges of things that happened decades ago, sometimes grudges towards people who are dead. We hold on to them. We stay stuck in deformed appetites. We stay trapped in hungers that we will not control. We do not want to control them. So we breathe deep of the water instead of finding our way back to the land, being pulled from the water. We, we continue, but, but hey, it's okay. Because I'm going to heaven. Maybe you are. Why breathe water? It's not what you were built for. Oh, that's so easy to say, though. I, I, 
I don't want to. It's just, it's just what I have to be. Look, I thought you had died, and I thought you were free. He who has died is set free from sin. Now, don't get me wrong, it's not instantaneous, and it doesn't happen in a moment. We are being changed from one degree of glory into another. But we ought to be being changed, right? That will happen as we deal with sin and with God. When we come and honestly address, I've got an anger problem, I've got a lust problem, I've got an unforgiveness problem, I've got stuff in me that's not of God, I'm pursuing a good life in foolish things, and that's really there, and it has mastery over me, and I can't control it, and it's bigger than I am. But God is bigger than that. And so I bring this monkey on my back, this ape on my back, this Tyrannosaurus Rex that's on my back, and I come to the God who can kill it. Put it in His hands. I bring them together. And God's Holy Spirit sets me free. And it happens over time, but that's what this prayer is doing. It is leading us into freedom. The place that it begins is the place where we have to begin. Oh, out of the depths I cry to you, Oh Lord, oh Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. That's a person in trouble, isn't it? Oh Lord, oh Lord. I mean, that cry is that repeated sense of of urgency, of desperation, and of fear. So many of us fall asleep to the reality that that is our condition in this world as we inhabit our sins. Our sins ought to make us feel that. I told you twice I've been in deep water. Twice I almost died. The second time was in New Jersey. I was a good bit older than two. I think I was 18. I was visiting a friend. I just graduated from high school and was making this trip around the country. And I visited a friend who was kind of a, a soul friend in high school. And he had moved to New Jersey. I went out there. And we went to the beach. And uh, I was, we were playing in the water. And uh, I'd never heard of the concept of a riptide. You ever heard of a riptide? Apparently those things can form unexpectedly. You know, because it happens when the, you know, the waves are coming in. But the water's got to go back out. And the water, as it goes out, can a few places can kind of converge and, and end up kind of digging a trough to the sand and making a place where it's like a river that's flowing that way. Okay? So I'm out walking along, and all of a sudden, it felt like two hands grabbed hold of my ankles and went, <laughs> and suddenly, I'm bouncing along across the bottom of the ocean really, really fast. And I'm like, this isn't good. I don't like it, you know. So I put my hands in and into the sand. I'm very grateful it wasn't coral. I'm sure I would have died, you know. But I put my hands in, and the sand is, I'm trying to hold on. I'm trying to fight against the, the stream. And I'm holding on as hard as I can, and the sand is just going right through my fingers. You know, I, I don't know how fast I was going, two, 300 miles an hour, something like that. This is what it felt like anyway. And I, I tell you what. I have never felt like something so big and so strong had hold of me. I, I, you're absolutely powerless against that. You know, I don't know why I did, but I finally said, I can't fight this. And so instead of trying to pull against it, I pushed. And 
my body went with the direction of the current and popped me up to the surface. And then I was out of it. And you know what the lifeguard did? He yelled at me. What are you doing way out there? Get back in here! You know, and I'm out past the surfers. And I'm like, are you kidding? Come on, David Hasselhoff, get out here! This is your job! This is your moment! Run in slow motion! Get on the jet ski! You know, but no, he just... And, and then when I got to the... Finally swam up and fell in the sand. You know, and I mean, because I was out past the surfers. I mean, I was way the stink out there. I didn't know if I could make... Finally get up and fall in the sand. He comes down and yells at me. And I'm like, rip, died, you know. And he's like, oh. Well, you probably needed help. <laughs> You're fired. Anyway, the reason I tell you that story is because this sin, a thing bigger than you, that pulls you to a place where you cannot live. And folks, you cannot survive this. It is stronger than you. It is meaner than you. And your only option is to cry out to a better lifeguard than the one I had. Your only hope is to cry out from the depths, God, I am in deep water. I am in over my head here. I admit it. I'm sorry. I wish I had never put toe into this. But it grabbed me and it's stronger than me and it's held me and I can't even see the land anymore. How will I live? Oh God, save me. Oh Lord, oh Lord, I cry out to You. Out of the depths I cry. Now how long has it been since you did that? You know, we sometimes will presume upon the cross in an unhealthy way. There is a healthy way of saying, I am forgiven, I am redeemed, and sin does not get to tell me who I am. Because I know who I am. I am God's child in Christ Jesus. I am fully alive. That's healthy. But there is a way of looking at it and bobbing around in the water and going, it's alright. That's why He died. You will stay untransformed. You will remain in the depths. When you come to terms with the trouble in yourself, the anger, the hate, the bitterness, the manipulativeness, and the willingness to lie, and all of the hundreds of things, the lust and the, and the craving and the desire for things that ought not be, when you come to terms with that's what's in me, you need to cry out. It's the honest thing to do. It's the truth. Oh God, save me from this. This is not who I want to be. And the the thing that keeps us from it, it is the thing that had Adam and Eve hiding in the shadows of the garden, running away and getting behind the trees, trying to escape from God. As if there were anywhere we could go to do that. Is that we are convinced that He will hold this against me. Oh, if you, O oh Lord, should mark iniquities, oh Lord, who could stand? Do you hear the repeat? Oh Lord, oh Lord. Do you hear that? The desperate terror of it? Oh Lord, I look at myself and I see such a mess. I am so disappointed in who I am and what I've become and the things that I've done. It's one of the reasons we don't deal with it. We'd rather not look at it. And we become convinced, surely when God thinks of me, He thinks of, and you fill in the blank. I mean, you know you better than I do. 
You know what your temptations are. You know the place where you fall again and again and again. You know it. And surely that's all God sees, right? Because so often that's all we can see. We look into ourselves and we let these things define us. I am. What is it? Is it pornography? Does that have a hold of you? Is it your temper? Is it your arrogance and your pride? Your certainty that you're right? Is it your willingness to fight and be a scrapper? What is it that's unlike God? And you think, that's what I am. And that's all God can see. Listen to me. Hear the Gospel. No, it isn't. That is not what He sees when He looks at you. There is a good reason to cry out to God from the depths. Because He sees something worth saving. He sees someone worth pulling from the water. And He doesn't want to see you die. And so we cry out to Him and, and we think, oh, but you'll be, you'll be mad and, and you'll hate me. No, He isn't. He's your Savior. The, Jesus came into the world to, to save it, not judge it. He wants to rescue you. He's your Redeemer. And so this this thought is put into the prayer. God, if you held a record against me, I'd be doomed. I'd be doomed. You're supposed to pray that because you believe it. You're convinced He's got the record. He's Santa Claus. He's making a list. He's checking it twice. And He's going to damn you if you're naughty. It's not your God. But with you, there is forgiveness that you might be feared so that I can find my way into the right relationship with You. So that I can trust You and stop doing these things. So I can find the escape in Your will from what I am without You. You forgive so that You can redeem me. And I need to accept that. I need to accept that God forgives. That He forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Because as long as I don't think He will, I won't either. And one of the prison bars that holds us most securely is our unwillingness to forgive ourselves. We are unwilling to say, I I know I did it, but it's not who I am. And by God's grace, I am free. And by God's strength, I want to leave it behind me. Until you can do that, until you accept that God forgives, you won't forgive yourself. And until you accept God's forgiveness and your own, you won't walk away from the prison because you think you belong there. You don't. Children of God do not belong in prisons. And you don't. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in His Word, I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman waits for morning. More than the watchman waits for morning. What is that about? What's the metaphor of the watchman? It's the second time they've come up in the Psalms of Ascent. I'm pretty sure these are all the same author. Same time period that it's all written. And because the watchman shows up a couple of times. What is that about? Well, what is a watchman? A watchman in an ancient city is the guard who stands on the wall looking out to protect the threatened city. Watchmen sentries are particularly posted during time of war or danger when the enemy army might be approaching. 
And the most awful time for the watchman is in the dead of night. Especially in a new moon or cloudy night when the shadows are deep and all you can see is darkness. And especially if you know that the enemy is there. The enemy is, in fact, assembled. You can smell them. You can hear them. But you can't see them. As you don't know what they're doing. Are they asleep? Or are they plotting? Are they coming for me? And I have all this responsibility to preserve and protect the little ones of this city from the threat that's outside. And so all the watchman longs for, what they desperately want, is to see that thing come up over the horizon. They need to see the dawn. Because it's their only hope. And so the watchmen spend the weary night staring into the threatening dark, longing for the light. They wait, and they wait, saying, is there any light at all? And so the sinner spends a weary lifetime staring into the dark of my own soul, longing for the light. Now what light do I see? I know what the watchman's looking for. What am I looking for? I'm looking for the work of God. Things that can only be in me because of the work of Christ Jesus, my Lord. Because those exist. Or at least they should. The Christian who is content to bob along breathing the water may not see it. But the Christian who enters into, spiritual, into the disciplined life, the spiritual life with God. I mean, tell the truth, have you seen it? The dawn in you, breaking in you. Have you ever known peace when you should know conflict? Have you ever known the ability to love the enemy? Have you ever known the ability to forgive the unforgivable, to set it down and not carry it anymore? Have you ever known the time when you overcame that hunger that drove you insane and controlled every one of your behaviors that made you willing to throw away your entire life to have it where you defeated it and you left it behind? That's the light. And so the watchman says, stands there, can the watchman make the sun come up? No, he can't. But I guarantee you he prays for it. He prays all night long, oh God, preserve the city because I can't. In this darkness I cannot protect my sons and my daughters, but you can. And oh God, bring back the light, please. I'm here as participant in vigil. Please rescue and deliver. And so we stand on the walls that guard our heart and we cry out, Oh God, let me see the light. Because unless you put light in me, all there will ever be in me is darkness. So I cry out, Oh God, I will wait for you, but please, please speed the coming of the dawn. May your light break in my heart. I want to be good as Jesus is good. Oh God, rescue and deliver me. Then, O oh Israel, hope in the Lord. For with Him there is steadfast love, and with Him there is plentiful redemption, and He will redeem Israel from all His iniquities. You are Israel. The people of God. The people who trust in God, who hope in the Lord. They don't hope in their own ability. You can't conquer sin. You can't do it. 
That's like trying to grab the earth when you're caught in a riptide. You cannot overcome that power. It is stronger than you. Place your hope in the Lord. Because the Spirit of God given to the Christian is stronger than the power of sin. And you put your hope in the Lord and He will deliver. He will rescue. He will redeem your soul. And He will change you from one degree of glory into another. You don't change yourself. You receive the change. You participate in the change. But you don't cause the change any more than you cause the sun to come up. The Holy Spirit is changing the sinner into a saint. That's who you are. And so in this prayer, we cry out to God, I am so sick of sin. I am so tired of my hatreds and my angers and my hungers and everything in me that I'm trying to build a good life out of and I know it's foolish and I want to be free. Oh God, save me! We cry out, Oh Lord, Oh Lord, Oh Rescue, Oh Redeemer! And He says, there is steadfast love with me. I love you, He says. And my love is not dependent on you. You don't work well enough to make me love you. I love you as sinner. And I love you too much for you to stay that way. Oh, but can He be good enough for me? I mean, do you realize how bad I am? With Him there is plentiful redemption. Not just redemption, but more than enough. He's got enough for you. And so the drowning child has hope. When I stepped off that ledge, when I was grabbed by the riptide, my hope was not me. It was my dad who came up the stairs and saw me in my desperate condition and rescued me. And that's your hope too. Your Father who comes to save you. Your Father who's working in your heart to change you. You got that thing in you that you don't like, but you think you're going to carry it for the rest of your life? I don't know, maybe you will. Paul did say, my grace is sufficient. There may be a time when you get to stay evil so you know you depend on Him. But there is so much that we could put away that we don't. Because we don't trust our dad. Still kicking off the bottom of the pool. Look, if that's you, cut it out. Don't do that anymore. Hear the Gospel and hear this prayer that you're supposed to say to Him. The Savior has come. And we cry out from the depths. He has pulled you from the depths. He is pulling you. And you may still be dripping. The sin may still... You are saved. You are rescued. You are redeemed. You've met the Savior in the water. And He is saving you from who you would be without Him. He says, if you trust Him, He will do this. It is His Word. How are you doing? You look into your heart, and do you see a change over time? And I hope so. But you know what? If that change is not happening in you, it can begin today. You might stick a pen in a calendar and say, this is the day that it began. At last, I found freedom in the Lord. And if you're not experiencing the change the way you think you ought to, come to Him with that and let Him set you free. If you want the prayers of the church, we'll pray for you. 
It may be that you came to, to this place bearing a burden that has nothing to do with your sinfulness, but it's killing you and you, you need the prayers of the people of God. Well, we want to pray for you. This is a praying church. Let us do it. And if you came here today and you're not a Christian, cry out, there's water right here that will get you out of the deep water. This morning, if you're subject to the invitation of Christ Jesus our Lord, why don't you come right here, right now, while we